Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. So this morning, I want to shift gears a bit and tell you a story uh, about my son Hudson when he was a toddler. So some, some evenings, uh, when Hudson was a toddler, I would come in and do bedtimes, bedtime and prayers. And then some other evenings, my wife Kim would come in and do bedtime and prayers. And then there were some evenings we would both come in together. And our experience was that kind of threw him a little bit. He, he was almost like didn't have this category that was a both and category. So he would say things like, well, I... I don't want mommy to do bedtime tonight, I want daddy. Or he would say, I don't want daddy to do bedtime, I want mommy. And then and we would kind of say to him, Hudson, we would say, both mommy and daddy are here. We're, we're both doing bedtime with you. And we kind of saw him growing in his abstract ability to say, okay, it doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be this one little space that's filled by either, or sometimes it's a both end. In scripture, there are actually quite a few both ands. Um, so we want to talk a little bit this morning about some examples of both and in scripture. And as we continue this morning's series, we're going to look at a passage that has a significant both and. If we think a little bit about some of the examples we've even seen so far in this series, uh, you know, Nathan has led us in seeing God is not either three or one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are both three and also one. There's a both end. Jesus is not either God or human. Jesus is fully God and also fully human. Uh, Jesus is the king of all kings, but he's not either the king of all kings or the servant of all servants. He's both the king of all kings and the servant of all servants. So we're in a a message series called Core, Core. And this morning, uh, so we've been in this series looking at core Christian beliefs and practices through the centuries. What the body of Christ has always held onto as core Christian beliefs and practices. And we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. This morning we arrive at uh, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 19. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 19. And we're going to see in this passage that there is a significant both and in this passage. We just sang these words from the hymn Rock of Ages, the classic hymn written in 1776. We sang the words, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So the hymn writer expresses the reality that no amount of effort, no amount of passion, no amount of emotion could atone for sin. That God needs to do it, and God alone. That God's grace is the only thing that could fill in that gap. Now, sometimes we think of the word atonement, something that we're all longing for, atonement, and it just seems a little bit like a fuzzy religious-y word, atonement. That's really what the hymn writer is expressing. 
Atonement is found in God and God alone. If we look at that word atonement, though, we can pretty easily figure out its meaning by breaking it down into its parts. Uh, we can think of atonement as basically at one at one And there's a couple of components to this. Uh, there's, there's nothing that we can do to be united to God. There's separation, there's division between God and us because of our sin. But we also sang this verse. The hymn writer goes on to write these words. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you hear that the hymn writer points to the cross of Christ as what atones for sin or makes us at one with God when there was separation and division between us? So we might think of it this way. This is kind of like the cross beam right here. This is God. This is humanity. That at the cross, God pursued us in love. He acted powerfully to atone for sin, to make us at one or at peace with him when there was separation, there was division between us. But there's a both and. There's a both and. You're going to see the passage that Diana's about to read. God both reconciles us to himself or makes us at one with himself and with each other. So there is also, there's not only a vertical aspect to what's been accomplished on the cross, there's a horizontal aspect. And so God is making peace between humanity and humanity. Or it's another way of saying peace with not only God, but also each other. Now, here's the way this works. Um, you might say, well, yeah, that sounds nice, but I can't quite picture how that's working. Think, uh, this picture, I think, will help you. So uh, all of us in this room, uh, at one point or another, had a decision before us, or even might have a decision before us this morning, where we would say, I'm gonna go with my self-salvation plan to atone for my sin on my own. I'll make it all right on my own. Or, I can turn in faith to God and receive his grace uh, based on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I can invite him to make me at one with him. When that happens, it's like I'm coming into right relationship with the triune God. I'm sort of entering the dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm reconciled to God. Through my faith in Jesus, I'm being restored to right relationship with God. Now, you've heard a lot of messages about this, but some stop there. This is not happening in a vacuum, though. It's not just me as an individual that's being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, even as God's leading me and I'm responding to his grace. There are many others who are responding to his grace. So we might kind of draw them 
they, through faith in Christ, they're entering this circle of oneness. And many of them have very different backgrounds, cultures, and even convictions that I might have. But as we enter into restored relationship with the triune God through our faith in Jesus, here's something that God's accomplishing. He is actually growing us in oneness with each other. So there's kind of like a horizontal thing happening. We're growing in oneness with each other. We have the resources through our restored relationship with God and the presence and power in our life through him to grow in oneness with each other, even those of us who are very different from each other, and so it's really tough to love. If we think about people who are very different from each other, in the passage we're going to look at today, we see a prime example. You almost couldn't find anyone in the ancient world that was, there was more hostility between than Jewish people and Gentile peoples. In the ancient world, those who were Jewish considered Gentile peoples to be spiritually unclean, idol-worshiping dogs. Those who were Gentiles considered those who were Jewish people to be socially misfit, elitist troublemakers. And yet, Paul insists, Paul insists in the passage we're about to hear read, that God is not only reconciling Jewish people and Gentile peoples to himself, he's also in the cross reconciling them with each other. So listen for that both and. I'm going to invite Diana back up to read. Listen for that both and in this morning's passage. by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Okay, there's so many things we could talk about. I want to zero in on three pictures of oneness that are accomplished through the cross. Paul gives three pictures of what it means to be the body of Christ, the people of God, people from different backgrounds, cultures, and convictions who are reconciled to God and in the process of being reconciled with each other through the power of God's spirit. The first one is Paul says that all who are united with God through faith in Christ are a new nation, a new nation. Look again at Ephesians 2. We just heard verses 17 to 19. 
Uh, he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were far away. So it looks like a reference to Gentile peoples. You who were far away, who haven't had all of the solid foundations with the true God that those in Israel have had. And peace to those who were near. Looks like a reference to Jewish people. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So Paul uses the imagery of citizenship here to describe the community of Jesus. He pictures Jewish people and Gentile people being brought together under the same umbrella of the benevolent rule of Jesus, and in a sense, they're part of the same spiritual nation, fellow citizens with each other. Peter actually uses this same image. Let's take a look at a couple of verses that pick up on this theme from 1 Peter. So we'll look at 1 Peter 1, and then also chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 1, 1. To God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now he goes on to give his message, but take note, he's talking to the whole body of Christ. He's talking to all followers of Jesus who were scattered throughout the ancient world because they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and this is one of the things he says to them. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter and Paul both use the picture of the people of God all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as a spiritual nation, a people of all languages, tribes, tongues, and people groups that crosses geopolitical barriers, and what unites them together is the, the significant commonality, in spite of all their differences, of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this makes sense of some of the complex stuff at the beginning of the passage, when, um, when Diana was reading, maybe some of you said, uh, okay, I'm kind of, you started tracking when it was talking about peace through the cross, but it was like, what's all this circumcision, uncircumcision stuff at the beginning? It makes perfect sense of what Paul says. He basically says this at the beginning of this passage, that formerly Jewish people were called the circumcision, and formerly Gentile people were called the uncircumcision. But he essentially says none of that's relevant anymore because... He says, through the cross, God has set aside, or some translations say abolished, ceremonial laws like circumcision. Well, why? Why is that? Because it doesn't reflect the identity of God's people anymore. Now, to see that, you kind of need to ask the question, what does circumcision mean? Uh, we just had understanding baptism. We actually had three understanding baptisms. And in some of them, we ended up talking about this very question. What does circumcision mean? I think to modern people, we kind of scratch our heads and we're like, How, what, is, what is the spiritual significance of circumcision? Why did God give that sign to Abraham in Genesis 17? The answer to that is, it was a sign of faith in him. And you say, how so? 
And I would simply say, it seems to be this. It seems to be if there is a family who, when their, their baby male child is a certain number of days old, if they are removing the foreskin from the part of the body that is responsible for sort of continuing the family line, then essentially what they're saying is, we're, we're taking a, a part of what creates this family line, and we're giving it to you, God. We're giving it to you. We're saying, we trust you with our family. Not only so, but we trust you with our family line. We trust you with our legacy. Now, uh, for medical reasons, you know, many babies get circumcised at the hospital, but we still continue the heart of this practice. We have child dedication, which we actually just had here at Southridge. We still continue the beautiful practice of parents saying, Lord, we trust you with our family. We wanna raise our children to be followers of Jesus. We wanna create, no matter what our background has been, we want to create a spiritual legacy that ripples down through the generations. That was essentially the meaning of circumcision. But here was the thing. Uh, the symbol no longer pictures the people of God when the people of God is not predominantly physical descendants of Abraham. So the focus of circumcision was the physical descendants of Abraham. Now in the Old Testament, you can probably think of stories where people who weren't nationally Israelite were people of faith in the true God. You know, you have people like Rahab and Ruth. There are examples. But by and large, those whose faith were in the true God were nationally Israelite. Now, through the cross, Paul says, God is kicking open the doors, and he's inviting people of all tribes, tongues, and nation, and people groups into relationship with him. And so when he does this, the symbol of circumcision that is so focused on the physical line of Abraham, it doesn't actually picture the identity of the people of God anymore. Because the people of God are a spiritual nation that crosses geopolitical borders and boundaries, the commonality that trumps all their differences is their faith in Jesus. Yes, they're from different cultures, different backgrounds, even different convictions, but faith in Jesus is the commonality that unites them across all of these nations and cultures. They're united by their faith in Jesus, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. A new nation, a new nation. That's the first picture that Paul uses, a new nation. Secondly, Paul says that those who are united with God through faith in Jesus are a new family, a new family. Look again at Ephesians 2, verses 18 and 19. It'll be up on the screens. Paul writes, for through him, we have access to the, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So Paul actually uses two family pictures here, two pictures of family. Uh, the first one is the Father. He says, no matter what your family background may be, if your faith is in Jesus, you share a Father with everyone else whose faith is in Jesus. And he says, no matter what your family background may be, if your faith is in Jesus, then you share a household 
with everyone else whose faith is in Jesus. So this, this picture of the father and the household are family images. They communicate that we who are in Christ are spiritual family. We have a father that we share. We are brothers and sisters with each other. We're co-heirs with our brother Christ. Paul uses a similar uh, image, similar language in Romans 8.15. Take a look at that on the screen. He writes, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba's like a, like a pet name for father. It's almost like we cry, Daddy, Father. So Paul says to the believers in Rome, look, when you believed, when you embraced Jesus, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's very presence living in you. That presence adopted you into God's family as his very children. Children of the Father, co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters of all whose faith are in Jesus. So if you're here this morning and your faith is in Jesus, no, you have a bigger family than you might have thought that you did. You have a multicultural, multinational, diverse family that crosses geopolitical borders, a global family of those who, whose faith is in Jesus. You know, one of the things that just strikes me powerfully is how this truth, it flattens our social hierarchies and it challenges our social hierarchies. Think about if you have like someone in your family who has like a certain status. Like maybe you have someone who's a doctor in your family or a celebrity or maybe some kind of a famous scientist. It's not significant to you that that person is that title. You love them because they're your sibling. They're in your family. It, it's important, to, what they do, because they're passionate about it, is important to you, but you don't love them more or less because of their title, their position, their status, or their role. You probably call them by their first name. You probably don't call them by some title because they're your brother and sister. And so, I often have thought to myself, I love the fact that at Southridge, we've, we've, for many years, we actually have not made a big deal about titles and positions. Um, if, you wanna sit, if you just wanna walk up and like talk to Nathan, you can just call him Nathan. You don't have to call him Reverend Tucky. You can, you can if you want to, but he won't like it either. Um, you don't have to call him Pastor Nathan or Reverend Tucky. You can just call him Nathan, because he's a guy that's your spiritual brother. Um, if you want to just walk up to Dave Polizzi in the foyer, you don't have to say, Dr. Polizzi, I'd like to consult with you. You can just call him Dave. I, I remember, um, some of you guys know my story. I've been part of Southridge for a long time. I have not always been on staff. Um, sometimes people say, what have you volunteered for at Southridge? And I say, well, I could give you a shorter list. Do you want short or long? Because I'll give you a list of what I volunteered for, but it'll be a really long list. There's actually... Shorter list of things I haven't volunteered for. So I've been at Southridge a long time. I remember in my first number of years at Southridge, there was just a, a guy, an older guy that I was getting to know, and hey, he has since moved to another state. And he, I just kind of thought of him as my brother in Christ. And then after years of knowing this guy, he mentioned that he had a PhD in chemistry. And it just sort of struck me that I just never thought of him as like Dr. So-and-so. 
Like, I, I, just, I just thought of him as like, he's, just, he's a guy and he's a really smart guy, but he's my brother in Christ. And so I just called him by his first name. And so I just think that all of these things, are, they're not just pragmatic. They express a theology of we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you may have been part of churches where like the hierarchy is very emphasized. And I just think like that, that is something that doesn't as clearly express a theology of family, a theology of brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. Because the reality is, is that some of you or me may go to someplace out, outside of this gathering and somebody might think that you're sort of more or less important because of a certain title or education or background that you have. But, but here's the thing, you're, you're not, and I'm not. The reality is, is that all of us are just serving God in different ways. We're just pursuing the calling that God has put on our lives and the unique way that God is telling his story through our story. And, you know, somebody outside of this place may sort of think we have a higher social status because we have a certain title or role or background. But here's the thing. Um, within the body of Christ, we're all just brothers and sisters. And so, so, so that, that title like may not represent at all like the value of our calling. The value of our calling is who it's for, you know, not how much status it has in the, in, in the eyes of other people. Uh, Russell Moore wrote something great in his book, Adopted for Life. Uh, I love this. He said, what would it mean if we took the radical notion of being brothers and sisters in Christ seriously? What would happen in your, if your church saw an elderly woman no one would ever confuse with cool on her knees at the front of the church praying with a body-pierced 15-year-old anorexic girl? What would happen if your church saw a millionaire corporate vice president being mentored by a minimum wage earning janitor? Because both know the janitor is more mature in the things of Christ. That's the kind of countercultural sort of hierarchy flattening uh, DNA that exists in the body of Christ. And earlier, we talked about the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. It strikes me that the places where persecution is the worst, the places that are most dangerous to be Christians, are hundreds of miles away. And so we could sort of cynically say, like, why should we care for those people? The, um, the World Watch List for 2023 listed the 10 most dangerous places in the world to be Christians. And those are North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and Sudan. All of those countries are hundreds of miles from here. Um, why, why would we care for those people? Why would we care about their hard circumstances? Now, one foundational answer is they're humans created in God's image, created with purpose and potential. But secondly, and just to apply Paul's point, they're spiritual family. They're spiritual family. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to rejoice with them, to suffer with them. We're going to inhabit a renewed creation with them. One where together we're going to serve Jesus and just savor in his presence for eternity, for the age to come. A new nation, a new family, and then thirdly, Paul says that all who are united with God through faith in Jesus are a new humanity. A new humanity. 
Take a look again at Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. It'll be up on the screen. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I've always really loved this part of scripture and been inspired by it, and the reason is because um, I work at a church, and it is easy to sort of slip into checking off the boxes of doing all the churchy things. It's easy to slip into the, the mindset of like, we are here to do these churchy things. And one of the reasons I love this imagery of the new humanity is it blows the door wide open. Essentially, it says this. It says, Jesus didn't pour out his lifeblood so we could check off the religious boxes and then come on Sunday and sing some Jesus-y songs and then live like atheists for the rest of the week. Jesus poured out his lifeblood so we could walk with each other in community, be used of God's spirit to help each other to become more human. When God thought up humans, he said, this is what a human is. That's been distorted and damaged by sin, but God is reclaiming it. And one of the most significant ways that he's reclaiming it is through community, through our lives in community with each other. We're walking together to become nothing less than fully human, like Jesus was, an expression of Jesus embodied with our gifts and passions, who he's made us to be, who he's wired each of us to be. Look at Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, or Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And, and one more, one more scripture I'll share with you, Ephesians 4.10. He, or Jesus, ascended higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. Do, do you see it's not just about checking the box of sort of churchy little activities, but literally God's purposes are to reclaim everything that's been lost and damaged by sin and lost to Satan. So the church is God's human reclamation plan that together as we walk on this journey of becoming more human, God is restoring my heart that's overwhelmed by sadness, my mind that's plagued by anxiety, my home that's more dysfunctional than I think it is, my rhythms which are spinning into workaholism and overfunctioning, my relationships with loved ones that are strained and broken. God's grace is in all of that, and as we walk with each other, his spirit is active in each other's lives to bring redemption, restoration, healing to what's been broken. He's brought us together through our faith in Christ to embody a life like Jesus lived, a life of God-centeredness, authenticity, humility, integrity, courage, and love. When I think about this expression of a new humanity, I think about a master artist. I think about the master artist, Michelangelo. Michelangelo 
is an, uh, an artist, the most famous artist perhaps of the Italian Renaissance. Michelangelo is best known for painting the frescoes on Italy's, the ceiling of Italy's Sistine Chapel. Uh, Michelangelo was born in the late 1400s. He lived through about the mid-1500s. Um, oftentimes, you hear illustrations or examples of Michelangelo, and the Sistine Chapel is mentioned over and over. But Michelangelo actually considered himself to be first and foremost a sculptor. A sculptor. So in his lifetime, over ne nearly seven decades, he sculpted over 40 beautiful sculptures out of marble. I'm gonna put a few of them up on the screen here. Um, some, some that you'll see on the screen are Moses. There's Moses. Moses is obviously um, Old Testament, famous Old Testament patriarch. Uh, King David. So there's uh, Michelangelo's David, um, which is a, a portrayal of Israel's King David. And one more, uh, La Pieta, which is, is basically Mary holding Jesus after his death when he was taken down from the cross. Just like beautiful marble sculptures. Michelangelo uh, once said about sculpting, he said, a sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. I picture Michelangelo working into the hours of the night. He's tapping away at this big old monstrosity of a marble block. And, and, and somebody just kind of walks by the door of his workshop and just says like, hey, Michelangelo, why don't you get some sleep? You know, what are you wasting your time with that big uh, marble block? And, and I picture him just sort of saying, I'm just clearing away the superfluous material. You don't know? It just, it's just gonna take some time. Inside the marble is a beautiful human being. And so we serve a master artist. We serve a master artist in the triune God. And through God's spirit, as we walk with each other, one of the things that he's doing is he's clearing away the superfluous material. Uh, the fear, the sadness, the anger, the hurt, so that that which separates us from each other is no longer separating us from each other. And the beautiful human that God imagines us to be and that God envisions us to be, a human that's perfectly at peace, completely, consistently at peace with God and others, at one with God and others, that that human can be realized. And so as we think about being on this journey together, we're on this journey together to become fully human, to become what God has always intended us to be. And as, 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 I, as I think about how to apply this, I think, but, but some people are so tough to love. And, and you think, some people are so tough to love. But here's the reality. The lie is we're on our own with this. Some people are just tough to love, and like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But the truth is this. The truth is this. You and I are not alone in loving people who are tough to love. Because as we lean into the power of the cross through relationship with God, 
God's spirit is clearing away the superfluous marble in our own lives. He's clearing away from our own hearts and our own eyes the anger, the sadness, the fear, the hurt, so that no barrier exists between us. The, the, the human who's at, at one with God and at one with others uh, can be released to fully and to freely love others. And here's the thing. I'm pretty tough to love too. You're pretty tough to love too. We just don't think that we are. We think, eh, pretty easy to love. And so here's the thing. As we actually live this out, we model for other people that when they lean into the power of the cross, when they lean into relationship with God, he's also clearing away the superfluous material from their lives. He's clearing away from their lives the fear, the sadness, the anger, the hurt, so that they can actually love me freely and fully like they were created to. We're gonna close with a song called Peace. It's a beautiful song. And the writer of the song says this in the chorus. The writer of the song says, may peace rain down from heaven like little pieces of the sky, little keepers of the promise falling on the souls the drought has dried. In his blood and in his body, in the bread and in this wine, peace to you, peace of Christ to you. The songwriter says this, he says, may we know that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is peace at oneness with God, peace at oneness with each other. And may we know that we're not alone, that we're, we are leaning into the power of the spirit as we pursue reconciliation, restoration, even in our toughest relationships. And we know, may we know that that's not a power that we manufacture or that we create. It's something that was accomplished on the cross. So silently reflect on this song as the musicians and singers um, lead you. And then I'll be back uh, for us to share in communion with each other.
actually get to remember the price that Jesus paid for us to be at peace with God and others. Jesus said that the symbols of deep remembrance that he gave to his people, his followers, were the bread and the cup. These were ways for us to remember that his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that we could be at one with God, and we could be growing in at oneness with each other. And so in just a moment, we're gonna release you to find the station nearest you, take the symbol of the cup and the bread, bring it back to your seat, and we're just going to reflect on those symbols a little bit before we take them together. Um, if you are a gluten-free person, um, all of the wafers are gluten-free. So just wanna invite you to stand where you are, find the station closest to you, and just bring the bread and the cup with you back to your seat.
So I just want to invite you at your seat as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand just to reflect on the meaning of them. Take some time to talk with God. Confess sin that he brings to mind. Um, Reflect on what it cost Jesus, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out so that we could have peace with God and others. Let's just take some moment of quiet reflection. Lord, it's a beautiful paradox as we think about the brutality of execution on a cross. That you would redeem and use that as an avenue of blessing to a cursed world. God, what an amazing mystery that you would choose our worst to bring about the best. God, thank you for not caring so much about your life and your comfort. But thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for laying down your body. Thank you for pouring out your blood. God, so we could embrace you and be embraced by you. And God, the dividing wall of hostility could be ripped down between us and those who are so different than us. God, through faith in you, Israel's Messiah, Savior of the world, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Pray this in your name. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 26, we read this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Let's take the bread together. Matthew goes on to say, then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take the cup with each other.
Now I just want to invite you to stand. Just before this teaching, we sang the song Rock of Ages. We're going to sing one, one more verse of that again to close our service together. taking time today to make it a priority to be with the body of Christ, to worship together. God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.